so I only had a week to prepare for this sermon because I thought the world was coming to an end. So I was thinking, why should I prepare? And uh, it didn't. And I was like, I'm supposed to be standing before the throne. And God said, well, you better prepare a sermon. Um, but now he has predicted another date. And I can tell you that it won't happen then either. Um, I'm excited to be here today. And I have to tell you that... Um, as I was preparing my sermon, God gave me one, and I was excited about it. I was ready. I was going to teach on the Beatitudes, which is Matthew chapter 5, um, the Sermon on the Mount. I was going to walk you through the Beatitudes, almost like a teaching time. It was going to be exciting. I was so excited. And uh, yesterday, um, I was just sitting there praying, and this past week, I preached a revival uh, across the bay, and, and God just kept putting on my heart one of the talks or one of the sermons that I did while I was across the bay, and I was like, but God... Like, are you sure? Are you positive? Are you sure? And I mean, I just had peace beyond uh, all understanding. And God said, you, you change it. And you teach on this today. But God didn't answer me with one thing I asked. And that was if I should wear socks or not. <laughs> but I decided. I won't tell you. I wore socks today, believe it or not. I hope you got that on the video camera so Brother Fred can see it. Now, I went to Arkansas not too long ago, and I preached uh, a disciple now up in Arkansas, and, and it was awesome, but let me tell you, I forgot to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 before I started. And that one, that, the first five minutes of me teaching was the worst I've ever done in my life. And I remember saying, okay, God, if you don't take over, this is going to be horrible. And God reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4 and 5, which I always share before every time I teach. So this week when I was over across the bay doing the revival, every day my wife would be like, David, don't forget your verse. Don't forget your verse. Don't forget your verse. Because she didn't want what happened in Arkansas to happen. So I read with you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4 and 5. This is my heart verse. This is the verse that God has given me. And I've promised him that I would share before I teach every time. And it says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but by the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. Let's pray. God, I, I cry out to you and ask you to move boldly right now. God, I ask you to show up and show off today. God, show off your glory, who you are. God, speak through me because otherwise this is pointless. God, speak in a powerful way. And as I've already said, may the power, may the fire fall down. God, we love you and we praise you. For it's in your name. Amen. Today I'm going to be teaching on what did the first church look like. Now, whenever you're trying to um, figure out what something should look like, you can always go back to Scripture and say, okay, well, we got an example here of the first church, so maybe our church should kind of look like the first church. I preached this sermon on Monday night uh, across the bay, and as I preached it, God put in my heart, it was the coolest thing. I stopped. I didn't say this, but He put in my heart, He said, David, isn't it amazing that Luke 4.18 looks just like this? Now, I share that with you because this is going to be an exciting message. There's going to be a lot of places in here you're going to be like, man, we're doing this. This is awesome. But today I want you to take it on an individual level. 
Because the church is not Luke 4.18. The church is us. And it's all of us together in the unity, in the body of Christ, across America, across the world. We are the church. So the church should look like what God shows us in the Scripture. If, if the first church was good enough to make the Bible, I think that it's something we should look at. You all agree? Okay, now that you all agree afterwards when I say, are you all ready to live like this? And I'm going to say, remember, you all agreed. If you have your scripture open up to Acts chapter 2, many of you will know this is Pentecost. And because the scripture is so long, I brought my big Bible um, so I can see. I want to start off with Acts chapter 2 verse 15. And I'm going to skip. And I'll tell you as I I change to it in the next verse because I just don't have time um, to read all of it. I won't tell you how long I preached... uh, Across the bay, because some of you will be like, oh no, it's time to go. Verse 15 says, For these men are drunk, as you suppose, for it's the third hour of the day. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. Remember, Pentecost has just happened. The, 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 the fireballs, the flaming tongues have fallen down. You know, I like to call it the Shekinah glory of God. I, I don't know, but that's just what I like to call it. The Shekinah glory of God has fallen down on these people. And all of a sudden, they begin to speak in what we call tongues. And I know when you say tongues, some people are like, but they spoke in languages that people could understand all the way across. And, And because of this, people tried to justify their actions. See, the spirit moves and people tried to justify the actions by saying they're intoxicated. And he was like, no, we're not. It's three o'clock or it's the third hour of the day. Excuse me. So let's skip to verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. Putting him, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Oh, I love that verse. Skip to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither uh, abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we all are witnesses. Therefore, having exalted to the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured forth this which you both see and hear. Okay, skip to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they added about 
thousand souls. Can you imagine? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together in gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all men. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I ask you real quickly to flip over to chapter 4. And I just want to read four verses. Verse 32 in chapter 4 of Acts, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed any belongings to him was his own, but all things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of the land would sell them and bring the proceeds and sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as needed. God, we ask you to bless the the, the reading of your scripture. Today, I'm going to walk through a little bit of what the first church looked like. I don't know about y'all, but just as I simply read Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, and a little bit in Acts chapter 4, I get fired up thinking about the church across America today. And I don't get fired up in a good way. I get fired up thinking, what has happened to what we call Christianity? The first thing that I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 Verses 13 and 15, they, they, they begin to mock the Spirit. They begin to say, oh, they're only intoxicated. The Spirit of God is moving. And people are trying to justify the actions. And let me tell you something, Peter has nothing to do with this. Peter says, hold up, I have a problem with this. He stands up and in boldness testifies to the resurrection power of who Jesus is. So let me ask you something. I joke about May 21st being the end of the world as this person. They said 3% of Americans followed this guy. Where is the church standing up against the false prophets? Peter had nothing to do with it. He said, I'm going to show you that this is the Spirit of God. And I'm going to stand before, and I don't care what happens. Can you imagine, Peter? I mean, this guy that he followed, like, died. And supposedly was raised again. And, and, and they knew that because they had gone, but nobody else really knew that. Yeah, they were testifying to it, but how quick can word spread? And all of a sudden, this power of God, a few days later, falls down and he stands up with the boldness of Christ because God is in him, the Holy Spirit, and in the boldness, he stands up and he says, I am not going to allow anybody to take away from the power of the Spirit. So my question to you is this. Are we as the church across America, inside of ourselves, bold Radical boldness to stand up against those who are coming against our generations. The false teachings, the false doctrines, the false principles. Colossians 2.8 says, don't be swept away by those things. 
Don't fall into uh, false teachings and and man-made doctrine or man-made tradition. And don't fall into principles of this world. Are we going to stand up against that? Or are we going to sit there and just let everything pass on by? And let Satan take over more and more of this world? See, we see in Acts 7, and you don't have to flip there, but in Acts 7, we see the boldness of Stephen. I mean, this first church was bold. He stands up and he says, hey... Jesus is the way. He was. He is, he, is, he, is, he is the way. He was everything. He really was resurrected. And what happens to Stephen? He's stoned. Or he's killed. We also see in Acts 8, 1 through uh, 4, and I'm going to read this to you. On that day, and this is talking about the day of the killing or the stoning of Stephen... On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house and dragging off the men and women and put them in prison. You know, when I first read that, I was thinking, man, where's the boldness? They all scattered all over the place. You know, where's the boldness? But then you have to read the next verse. Those who had been scattered preached to the word, wherever they went. They had just seen somebody killed because they loved Jesus with all their heart. They had just seen that Saul is coming after them and throwing them in jail, but yet the boldness of the power of the Spirit came upon them and they preached wherever they went the truth of who God is. You want to see the first church and what it looked like? You need to have boldness because you know the Scripture and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and you realize that you have the power of God inside of you. The next thing we see is that Peter gives the simplicity of the gospel in verse 38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus and for, and for the forgiveness of your sins. Philip in Acts 8.5 simply preached... The Messiah. We have to understand and know the simplicity of the gospel. And that's that Jesus Christ, though we were sinners, still died for us. See, a lot of times we get so tied up with all this theological junk, is what I like to call it. You know, oh, you've got to be Arminian or you've got to be Calvinist. Or, oh man, you have to uh, believe in, in pre-trib. Or man, you've got to believe in post-trib. Or all this stuff. The gospel is the simplicity of this. Jesus Christ came because he loved us so much. He died because he loved us so much. He conquered death because he loves us so much. And we may know him if we give our lives to him. Now, I, I want to tell you that part of the simplicity of the gospel, to me, is also knowing counting the cost. Because I think that we have, uh, across America, I think that we have watered down the Bible. We have people out there preaching um, the prosperity gospel. We have people out there saying, it's okay as long as in the end you repent. We have people out there who, who don't want to tell you that you're going to have struggles and you're going to have hard times when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. And guess what happens? People get a false insecurity and all of a sudden they're like, man, this isn't what I was taught. And, and, and then they turn and they run. But they still have the name of Christ upon them because they still want to call themselves Christians. And guess what happens? We see differencing between those who truly believe and have counted the cost 
and those who just want to be Christians so that they can go to heaven. So we see that you have to know the simplicity of the gospel and you have to share that everywhere you go in boldness of who God is. We have to stand up against those who are coming after our culture, coming after our students. We have 28 students, or 28 people, excuse me, going to summer camp today. We leave at midnight tonight. And we are going to be so removed from culture for a week and I praise God for every minute of it. They're like, huh, I didn't know that. In verse 41, it says 3,000 were added daily. But check this out. Only true believers. Now, I'm about to step on... Well, I'm not going to step on toes. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm going to share truth with you. In the past three weeks, God has taking me on a journey within a journey. I'm still on a journey about how God loves me and I just cannot grasp the idea that He loves me so much that He would step out of glory for me. But I began to realize that if we don't, when somebody calls themselves a believer, we, we, have, a, we have a standard. And it's not, it's not a legalistic thing. It's that when you love Christ with all your heart, you want, to, you want to study the Word of God, you want to know it, and you want to live by it so that the Spirit of God may move through you. And I struggle with the idea that we might, in our churches across America, might be so worried about hurting somebody's feelings that we allow people to call themselves Christians when they're truly not, and all we're doing is giving them a false sense of security. Like, man, I'm too good of friends with this person. It's okay that he totally does not understand the truth about the Scripture. He calls himself a Christian, so that means I can hang out with him, but I don't want to hurt his feelings, so I'm not going to say anything. You know what we like to call it in the church? So we've given it a name. We call it lukewarm. Now, that doesn't mean if... I, I believe that, that, that people can backslide. I believe that you can fall short of the glory. And I believe that God um, will heal you and that you will always come back to who God is. But when I read in Revelation about lukewarm, what I see there is that it's somebody who wants Christ but wants the world. Not willing to lay down the world for Christ. And let me tell you, I've never found anywhere in Scripture somebody who wants Christ but cannot lay down the world. I've never seen that anywhere as somebody being saved. But yet we preach that. You know, not only that, but you can look at Revelation where it talks about lukewarm. And, and what you realize is that the hot waters were great because they would use them for baths. And the, and the cold water was great because they would use them for drinking water. So in reality, it's good to be hot. It's good to be cold. It's not. He will spew you out of your mouth if you are lukewarm. And what they saw is that they would pipe in water and the lukewarm water was disgusting. 3,000 believers joined the church that day. True believers, those who truly desired. And, and, and if you have just this urging in your heart when I share that about true believers, more than likely you are. But there might be something that you're struggling with. But if you're somebody who says, I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I'm going to live totally opposite of the gospel, I have a problem with that. I still love you, but I have a problem with that. Because you represent my God. You represent my king. You represent the one that I live for every day and you are telling people a false lie. 
I was talking with a lady yesterday and I was talking with somebody about a month ago and both people were sharing with me why somebody they knew was not saved. And they said that the reason that they're not saved is because they continue to say that they they see people who call themselves Christians and act totally different and they don't want anything to do with that God. You know what we need to do in the church? We need to rally around each other. When we're hurting or when we fall short of the glory, we need to come together and help each other out so that we can find ourselves back whole and pure before our God. But instead, the church, you know, somebody falls short or hurts, and guess what? We almost ostracize them. We almost say, oh man, I can't believe that person did that. That's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says that we should confess our sins one to another so that we may be healed as, as Christ come in and, and, and mending that. We should repent. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What are we supposed to mourn over? We're supposed to mourn over the sins and struggles in our lives. 3,000 people were added that day. The church begins to grow. And let me ask you something. If 3,000 people joined this church today, would we be able to sit? No. And what I see in this is that the church is not about a building. Because it it begins to say that they began to have meals together in their homes and breaking of bread. The church is not a building. And many of you know this, but I have to say it. Acts 19, which is when Paul is in Ephesus. And he goes there and he converts, or, or the Spirit converts about 12 people. And they teach the gospel. And they go away and they study the Word of God over and over and over. And all of a sudden, a revival breaks out in Ephesus. People are burning their, their witchcraft books. They're, uh, they're, they're getting rid of their idols and all these things. And let me tell you, Demetrius, the silversmith, has a problem with this. Probably his financial problem because he used to make uh, uh, goddesses of Artemis or statues or idols of Artemis. And Artemis' temple is still there. We have one of the seven ancient wonders of the world is Artemis' temple in, the, in Ephesus. Um, and I want to go there so bad someday. I can't wait to see it. But this temple was huge. I mean, huge. You should go online, Google Artemis' temple, what they think it looked like. It is massive. So the people in Ephesus uh, would, would, had to worship this temple, this goddess of Artemis, the fertility goddess, for so long. And Paul had to write and show them. In the book of Ephesians, he said, Hey, your God does not dwell in, in a temple made by human hands. But instead... He dwells inside of you. See, so often we forget that as Christians, that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us and that we are the church. And as you leave here today, the church is with you. Students, they cannot take church or Christianity out of public schools. Why? Because if you believe in Christ, you're going into that school and so is God. You cannot go into a public school and check God at the door and go in because God lives inside of you. See, I can only imagine that, that the people of Artemis would look, or the people of Ephesians would look at them and say, um, you say you believe in this Jesus guy. I believe in Artemis. Maybe the sun was setting over Artemis' temple. I don't know. I believe in Artemis. Look at how great her temple is. And they now had the boldness of the first church to say, I'm glad you have to worship something made by human hands. My God lives right here. 
We've got to have the boldness and understand that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. The church, the building, is right here. We are the building. We are the temple. We are the building. Which takes me right in to my next point. The church devoted, or excuse me, um, it, it takes me into the fifth point, which is the last one. I have two left. The church devoted themselves to teaching of the apostles. They began to, to devote themselves daily to the teaching of the apostles. The fellowship, the breaking of bread together in prayer. Man, you know, Southern Baptists have the fellowship part down to a T. They began to devote themselves to the daily teaching of the apostles. Let me ask you something. How many of you devote your life daily to the studying of God's Word? The first church did. Not only that, but to me it tells you how important it is of who you allow up here to teach to you. How many of you truly know the Word of God that you can stand in the midst of trials and tribulations and count it as joy because God has told you to? How many of you have truly know the Word of God that you can fight off false doctrine and you can stand before that man who claims that the end of the world is coming and say, excuse me, but the Bible does not say that. See, they devoted themselves daily. And let me tell you something. And I'm kind of putting two sermons in one because I'm about to say another beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I cannot get enough of the Word of God when I dive into it. I mean, I could honestly be there, and, and maybe it's a good thing that I have this disease that I have because the medicine that I take keeps me up to like all hours of the morning. So I get to sit there and just think and dwell on the things of God. How many of you devote yourself to the studying of the Word of God so that you may stand true, so that you may help those in trials and tribulations, so that you may show Scripture And direct those in the right path. That you may know the simplicity of the gospel. That you may have boldness. See, it's not about a checklist of just getting in the Word every day. It's about finding the Spirit and let the Spirit speak to you. So that you may be filled. You are the temple. The Spirit comes in and He just, oh, like the Spirit desires the Word of God inside of you. I cannot get enough of it, I'm telling you. And then they had all things in common. It says they have all things in common. And I kind of tie this in with how they devoted themselves to prayer as well. I think that, that us as the church, as the body of Christ, we should devote ourselves in prayer, but not just in one church. I, I, I am so thankful. I am so thankful that our pastor calls us together once a month and tells you and says bring people from all denominations I want to share with you a little interesting uh, side note here you know Pentecost 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 what happens here is all of a sudden they begin to speak in a tongue that everybody around could understand and hear so to me I call that um, I, I would even venture to say it was almost a universal language I mean, do y'all see where I get that from? Everybody understood. Now, did, did one person speak and five people, like, did five different tongues of different languages go out? Possibly. But they all heard, they all understood. 
they were unified. It's almost like me standing before somebody in Spanish or, or Spain or something like that. Yeah, and I'm speaking Spanish all of a sudden. I don't even know it. And they understand what I'm saying. All of a sudden, great things can happen between me and this person because we, we can talk to each other. We can, we can bond together. We can, we can run together. Well, there was a story in the Scripture in Genesis chapter 11 about a tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11 verse 6 says this, God looked down and saw that they, having one language, could do all things because if they unified themselves and put themselves together, they could do, one, do anything. All things were possible to them. So, because they disobeyed God, because God told them to, diverse, or to spread out, because they disobeyed God and tried to become one and unify and build this huge tower, he says, let us, by the way, that's a great uh, reference to the Trinity, let us go down and we will we'll spread them out and we will change their language because when all of them speak the same language and they become unified, all things are possible. Well, let me tell you something. I see at Pentecost the reversal of Babel. Because all of a sudden they can all speak and they all hear each other. And the reason that I see the reversal of Babel is because of this. They, if they become unified in the power of God and they can all understand each other, guess what? Everything is possible. So what does that tell me about the church? We need to become unified now, I saw uh, a Bible study this morning. Somebody texted me a Bible study that even said God, has, God doesn't tell us to go and be unified. He says just accept the unity. But you know what it requires for us to accept the unity? Breaking down denominational barriers. I mean, I understand there's parts of different denominations that, that I disagree with spiritually. But if they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are on our team. And so often we are working against them. The first church didn't have denominations. I mean, I can't find any... I, I have looked everywhere in the Scripture to find the first denomination. I only find the first church. Now, am I saying that, that the denomination of Baptist is bad? Absolutely not. I'm proud to be a Southern Baptist, but I'm more proud to be a follower of Christ. Before I was here, I even worked in a Methodist church. Now, I worked for K-Life, and the Methodist church was almost like my governing body, but I worked for K-Life, and I had no problem because I told them, I said, I preach the gospel, and that's all I preach. We are one unified body and we've got to tear down the denominational differences because when we come together as one in America and we find simply the true believers and we have boldness and the Spirit of God reigns inside of us, guess what? All things are possible, which means we can take back this country. I mean, if you don't believe it, then you haven't seen the power of God lately. But you know what it requires? Us becoming unified, knowing the Word of God, standing strong, putting away the selfishness that we have created. Do you know what denominations have done? It has created a selfish religion. Think about that. Well, if I don't like it here, I can just go on over here. It's all about me, isn't it? Oh, well, you know what? I'm tired. I'm kind of frustrated here, so I'm going to try this one. 
We have created something about ourselves when it's about the Spirit of God. And if you want to see the first church in our lives, we throw away all denominational differences. We throw away and we we find unity and we take out the selfish factor of ourselves and we only seek the power of God. Now there's one left. I told you that I lied to you. I said there was one after that, but there's one left. I still have five minutes. That's awesome. It also says in the first church that they gave beyond measure. Now let me tell you something. I cannot tell you as I study the scripture how much of a blessing it is to know that I am at a church. And this is public knowledge. You all know this. That 15% off the top goes to missions. Goes to those in need and hurts and pains. We have a benevolence fund on top of that to help those. And I'm not bragging for anybody who is a uh, visitor in here. All I'm saying is, is that, that I see this as biblical. And that's awesome for our church. But like I said, let's take this to the individual level. You know, people joke on me here and there because I love Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is my best friend. He ruined my, my wife's life. <laughs> For those who know Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey is a, a financial guy who basically talks about getting out of debt. He basically says, eat rice and beans until the day that you get out of debt. He basically says, do everything you can to be debt free. Let me share with you why I believe so strongly in this. And by the way, May of 2012 is our date to be debt-free, minus our house. Because we have, we have persevered, and we have, we have fought through it, and we have fought through it. Proverbs 22.7 says this, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender. Two things I want to share with you about the first church. One, they only had one master. And when you are in debt, you have another master. It's scriptural, Proverbs 22, 7. It says that the lender is your master. And here's how I see it as your master. Check this out. When God puts on your heart to give because there's somebody in need, which is scriptural, which is the first church, which is what we're supposed to do, on an individual level, when God puts on your heart to give because someone's in need, you are bonded because you have debt. If that's you, because you say, man, I got to make my debt payment. So how in the world could I give? I'm fearful. I'm scared. What if I give and then I can't make this payment? And then these, I mean, which is better? And you have all these things going through your mind. You're like, oh, you know, like back and forth. You want to be the first church? You find yourself at a place where you can give beyond measure. I'm going to share a quick story. And I didn't ask Brother Ed if I could do this, but it's actually um, very wise counseling from him. I was driving a Jeep one day, and it had no doors on it. I loved it. It was awesome. <laughs> Brother, Fred, uh, Brother Ed saw it, and he was like, David, you know, like, that's cool. You know, like, did, did you get this? And I said, no. I said, Dave Ramsey won't let me. <laughs> we were at Davison parking lot. I don't know if you remember this. And I said, maybe someday, if I have the ability to buy it with cash and all that, I'll buy me this, a Jeep like this. 
no doors, you know, all that. And Brother Ed made this comment, and it will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, David, as long as you have a car, that extra money could be used for the kingdom of God. Talk about a man who has a heart like the first church. It's not about us. It's not about me. He's, God says that, that when you help the least of these, you do it for me. They said, God, when were you hungry? I don't remember it. When were you thirsty? When did you desire clothes? I would have given it to you. And God says, when you do it for the least of these, you do it for me. Now, I'm not up here teaching a financial lesson, but I'll tell you that if you find yourself bonded, then how can you, how can you give when those who are in need, which is what the scripture tells us to do, and we're the church. Yeah, our church does a great job, but individually we are the church, unified together. And can I share with you one last thing as we close? I love this with all my heart. I love it. In the Old Testament, it says, you know, like, bring your tithes into the storehouse, and when you do, that God will open up the window of heaven and shower down blessings upon you, right? Y'all know that? Anybody know where it's at? Malachi. I'm glad y'all told me because I was going to say Micah. (laughs) Malachi. You know what's cool about studying Greek words? The word for window of heaven is the same Hebrew word used when God said that he opened up the floodgates of heaven to flood the earth. Think about that for a second. The same Hebrew word used that when you open, when you bring your tithes, and, I, and, and that doesn't mean financial gain. That doesn't, that, it's just, it says blessings. It might be. But Blessings. So what do we do to look like the first church? We find ourselves in boldness in the Spirit of God. We, we understand and we give the simplicity of the gospel everywhere we go. But we don't just convert people, we also disciple them. We bring them and we show them the truth because right after that it says, the church devoted itself in teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. We study the Word of God daily. We understand that the Spirit is with us everywhere we go. We build unity amongst believers, not just in this church, but across denominational barriers, across the world, all over. And we help those who are in need. We give beyond measure. We give. Because God says, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Now there might be some of you here tonight, or this afternoon, this morning, whichever one it is, might not be part of the church. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I have to tell you, and I'm not trying to be mean, but according to my scripture, you're not part of the church. But we desire those who are in the church, in the boldness of who we are in the Spirit, but with the simplicity of the gospel, desire for you to know Jesus with all your heart. So I want to close with the simplicity of the gospel. If you believe that Jesus Christ truly did die, came down out of heaven, Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself, died upon a cross for you, took your sins upon, your, upon the cross, 
was buried and raised on the third day, and you believe that he is high and lifted up, and that he is next to Jesus, or next to God, excuse me, in the heavens, and you believe that to be true, and you desire to allow him to take your life, and to use it for the glory and the power and the kingdom, then you can be saved. Simply by asking him to come into your life and laying your life down at the foot of the cross. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Those who are in the church, it's time to be bold. It's time to say we're fed up. I'm tired of it. I'm ready. I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready for the fire of God to fall down like it did on Mount Carmel. I'm ready for that fire to show up in this place. And I see it. I sense it all the time. And that's why I was so encouraged on teaching the first church to this group of people. But you know what God told me? Is that there might be a visitor in here that needs to take this back to their church. But there might be those in this church that need it for their own personal church themselves. They need to hear some of this. The gospel is for all of us. The church is for those who believe. And it's time for us to be bold.